As we turn to the Word of God, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 32, we will, or excuse me, 37. We will begin in verse 2 of chapter 37, a verse which says this is the account of Jacob. It is a, the, that particular sentence, this is the account of, is a marker for us that we are transitioning to a different focus. Um, we are going to look at the family of Jacob. We have considered Jacob's life up till now as he has uh, deceived his father, uh, been kicked out of the family house, and went to find wives and children in a different land as he has returned to the promised land and become settled there. We are going to consider the final section of the book of Genesis, this 10th book, this 10th account, which is the account of Jacob or rather the account of Jacob's family. And so hear the word of the Lord as we begin reading in Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached him, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented one he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. 
As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robes, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn into pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for this word that you have given to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that shines light upon your word and upon our life so that we might see how you speak to us. Lord, today I ask for that spirit to be in this place. I ask for that spirit to be with your people so that they might know you, so that they might hear you, so that they might understand you, so that they might be changed by your word. Speak to us today so that we might progress on our journey toward holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Siblings, brothers, sisters, you know you love them, but sometimes you just... If you have brothers or sisters, there's always some level of sibling rivalry. The older, sister, the older siblings try to lead and... Younger siblings, for some reason, don't want to follow our sage and wise advice. Younger siblings try to assert their power, and older siblings know where the power truly resides in the family. It's with us. And underneath it all, everyone suspects that someone in the family, one of the child, some of the children, are the favorite. However, I would imagine that no matter how bad your situation can be in your family, No one here tried to murder or sell their siblings. You thought it. We all know you did. But you didn't actually try it. Today we're going to actually look at such a situation, this this sibling rivalry, this family dynamic, gone horribly wrong. But arching over this whole situation is the question... How do I react when others, whether they're siblings, whether they're friends, whether they're strangers that enter into my life, what, how do I react when others seek my harm? And I hope that today we see that because God is sovereign over all sinful actions, that we are called to trust in Him even in the midst of betrayal and oppression. 
First off, we need to see a very important thing about this story. We have a tendency to focus on Jacob and his brothers, or Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. And we have a tendency to focus on all the, the, the scheming and the attempted murder and the, attempt, and the selling into slavery of Joseph. But we forget that this is not merely a story about Joseph and his brothers. This is an account that introduces us to how Jacob and his family interact not only in the promised land, but also in Egypt as God prepares them for the, the, the keeping of God's promise to Abraham. Go back to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham comes to God and he says, look, God, you've promised me certain things. You've promised me a land to live in. And, and yes, I, I'm here in this land. I'm, I'm a stranger. I'm an alien here. I don't have any permanent property, but you've You've promised me a land to live in. You've promised me that I will be a blessing to the nations. And you know what? I've had an opportunity to bless the nations as, as these, these foreign powers came in and, and waged war against the nations here in this area of Palestine, this promised land. I was able to defeat those nations on behalf of, of my local friends. I was able to rescue Lot. I was able to give spoils of war to to the nations around here, and I've blessed them through military might and, and through economic help. So I've seen that begin to come to pass. But Lord, I, I don't have any children. And you've promised me descendants that, that outnumber the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And Abraham says, Lord, what, what do I do with these promises that seem to be unfulfilled? And so God comes to him and he says, he says you can trust me because I am God. And I will fulfill these promises to you. Yes, you and Sarah will have a son. We know that it took a little while for that son to come along. And, but he says, and yes, you will be a blessing to the nations throughout the establishment of your people as a nation. And yes, the land will be yours. Or rather, it will belong to your family. Because you will not see the land as your possession. In fact, your family will leave the land for 400 years to suffer oppression, to suffer slavery, before they actually take possession of the promised land. We saw Abraham have children and grandchildren. We've seen Abraham purchase some land. We've seen him and Jacob be blessing to the nations around him, but we have not seen the fulfillment of the prophecy that they would leave the land for a time. And that is the point of this last book in the book of Genesis, is that God is going to keep his promise of removing the Israelites from the promised land for a time, the descendants of Abraham. And God is very active in this particular account, this introductory account, even though we don't quite see him. Who gives Joseph the dreams? that he is going to tell to his brother and to his family. It is God that reveals to Joseph through these dreams without any direct um, account of who he is giving these dreams. God reveals these dreams to Joseph. And we see in this dual dream, in this dual revelation, we see that God is in control of everything that happens here. There are a lot of coincidences that happen in this story. Joseph happens to see his brothers, his half-brothers through Zilpah and Bilhah, do something wrong that he has to report to his father about. 
Joseph is the younger brother, the, the tattletale. And his brothers just hope, happen to get angry with him. And throughout this story, his brother's hatred for Joseph just happens to grow. His brothers leave for Shechem. They hang out there for a while with the flocks. And they just happen to have to leave that area. Joseph goes to look for them. He wanders around and just happens to run into an anonymous man who just happened to overhear Joseph's brothers saying, let's move on to Dothan. His brothers just happened to notice him coming from a distance. And at just the right time, a caravan just happened to show up for Jacob to be, or Joseph to be sold to the caravan. This just happening is a pattern that has shown up throughout the book of Genesis. Remember, Abraham's servant went to Padam Aran and showed up at a well, and a woman just happened to show up at the well, who just happened to be the daughter of a person who was related to Abraham, who just happened to be the family that the servant was told to go to to find a bride. Happened to Jacob. He just happened to show up at what may be the same well, just happened to meet a, a beautiful woman from the same family who just happened to be the people he was supposed to seek a wife from. And in each of those accounts, we talked about that nothing in this world just happens. God providentially ordered everything in those situations so that the will of God could be carried out. And as horribly as this story ends, as horribly as all of those things just happened to line up, God directed them as well. And it's a hard thing for us to grasp that God uses events that turn out horribly for us for His glory and for His honor. But the reason that is is because He is sovereign over all things. Think about it. He has given this promise to Abraham. He has said, the land will belong to your family, but not to you. But first, your family's got to live in Egypt for a while. And do you realize today, in today's passage, we are considering the beginning, the pivotal event that keeps that promise? So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. We are going to see this story unfold. We are going to see Joseph uh, be, be sanctified of his, of his arrogance. I was always taught growing up that we need to... We need to live like Joseph, but the more I read this, I'm like, you know what? Joseph is an awful lot like my little sister. He's arrogant, and he's telling everybody how they're just going to serve him. He, he's a tattletale. Like I said, it reminded me a lot of my little sister. Of course, if I really read deeply into the story, I'd probably see myself in the other brothers. But anyway, we're not talking about that right now. But God orders and orchestrates all of this in order to get Joseph to Egypt. And in getting Joseph to Egypt, he sets the foundation. He sets the course for not only Jacob's family to be protected in the midst of the famine, but for the events that need to occur for, Abraham's, for the promise to Abraham to happen. God sets that in motion in this little verse that we, we this, this 
phrase at the end of verse 28 that we have a tendency to overlook. Who took him to Egypt? God orchestrated all this together so that his plan might come to fruition. But we still have to deal with the fact that his brothers sought to kill him. First off, they said, let's kill him. Let's put our hands on him. There are, a, there are ten of us. There's one of him. We are going to kill him. And we are going to make sure his dreams never come true. Reuben says, well, let's hold off just a minute. We don't want to be guilty of this. We don't want to be guilty of blood. So we'll just throw him in the cistern. Now, cisterns were these, these holes dug into the rocks that were anywhere from six feet to 20 feet deep that would fill up with water during the rainy season so that, so that the, 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 the inhabitants of the land could come and have water during the dry season. Reuben is based... Now, we know Reuben's doing it because he wants to, to maybe save Joseph and hopefully, and maybe in his mind, restore himself after he has been disqualified from leadership in the family for sleeping with Jacob's concubine. We know that that's his... his his intention, but his argument is, let's not be guilty of blood on our hands. Let's let him starve and thirst to death in the middle of a hole in a desert. So much nicer, is it not? His brothers say, fine, let's let him starve to death. In fact, they're so cold about this thing. What is the first thing they do after they throw him in the cistern? They eat. No conscience there. Have you ever committed a sin? and then not been able to eat because the guilt got to you so bad? Imagine plotting the death of your sibling and then just sitting down to a meal like nothing had happened. There is evil that happens in all this. They finally pull him out of it and said, okay, we're not going to kill him, but let's sell him. Let's make, I think it's like close to three years wages off of our brother. Those 20 shekels of silver was a, a significant amount of money during this time. Let's get rich off of our brother. Let's abuse our brother. Let's oppress our brother. Let us, and then call him brother later on. I mean, come on. Let us sin against our brother. Let us pile sin upon sin upon sin, which leads to his oppression, which leads to his imprisonment, which leads to his slavery. What does God do with that? Haven't we all been there? Haven't we all had somebody come upon us, across us, somebody that we trusted? It doesn't have to be a brother or a sister. It can be a friend. It can be another family member. And they just pile sin upon sin upon sin on top of us. What do we do with that? Well, here's what Joseph did with it. If we fast forward, it's at Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 21. Jacob has died. His brothers come to Joseph realizing that the only buffer between them and Joseph's wrath is gone. And they come to him, they grovel, they, they fall on the floor there before him in Egypt. He's the second most powerful man in Egypt. He has the army at his disposal. He has executioners at his disposal. And they throw themselves on the floor in front of him and say, look, they might have made this up. Jacob told us to tell you to treat us nice even though he's gone. Because we treated you really poorly. Listen to what Joseph said. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. 
What Joseph says here is, yes, you plotted to kill me. You threw me in a dry cistern where if you had decided to leave me there, I would have died of thirst within two or three days. You sold me into slavery. And what you did was intended to hurt me, to harm me, and to be evil against me. But I'm not God. And he used this for good, for the saving of many, many lives. So don't be afraid of me. Joseph declares the evil intentions and the evilness of their actions, but he affirms that God is far, far bigger than any sinful act against us. It's called sovereignty. God is bigger by far than any sinful act ever committed against us. God works through the sinfulness of people. It's hard for us to comprehend that. It's hard for us to grasp that. It's hard for us to think that when we are crushed by the acts of others, that when our heart is ripped out because somebody has come to us in our lives and said, for your betterment, is what they say, I'm going to destroy you and take from you every shred of decency, of humanity, of worth that you think you have. Because I don't like the way you work in my life, and I am going to assert my dominance over you. God takes that. And He is so much bigger than that. He is so much bigger than the difficulty we go through. And, and He is working His glory. Thanks be to God, every now and then we get to see the glory that He works through that. Because sometimes we get through those situations. We weep before God. We say, God, I don't understand why this is happening to me. Why are you driving me through this? Why are you ringing me through the ringer on the washing machine, the old-fashioned washing machine where, where you, you pulled the clothes through the ringer? Why are you making me go through this? Sometimes God is so gracious to us that we look at it two, three, four years down the road and we say, Hallelujah. I see the growth that came. I see the sanctification that came through that. Sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we never understand, but we, we know that God is good and God is sovereign. We talked a little bit last week about the Psalms of Lament. There are psalms that come after the laments called Psalms of Thanksgiving. And Psalm 116 is one of those psalms. The psalmist is saying, God, I called out to you from the depths, from the, from the bottom of the pits of my distress, and you answered me. And in the middle of Psalm 116 and verse 10, he's going through, he's going through the things that he went through that God answered. And in verse 10, the psalmist says, I believed, therefore I cried out to you. The psalmist is affirming what Joseph told his brothers. 
What everybody else did against me, they meant for evil, but God meant for good, and I trust you enough to cry out to you in the midst of that. Brothers and sisters, as we suffer the shames of other people's sins against us, not even the shame of our own sin, as we suffer the shame that other people seek to heap upon our heads, we know that God is bigger than that. It doesn't give us some Pollyanna, some, you know, I'm happy, slappy all the time. It gives us the ability to weep and to mourn and to be sad in the midst of it, but know that God is in control. And He is working not only our good, but His glory through all of those things. And so because God is sovereign over other people's sinful acts against us, we are called to rest and find comfort. We cannot forget that this passage, as much as the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of the Scriptures, is a story about God. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 actually quotes word for word those verses from Psalm 116. Hear these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 8 through 18. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that His life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but, what, but on what is unseen. Not... Paul goes through and he says we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. From the time that Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus and he began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was the victim of other people's sin. They plotted to kill him. A couple times they thought they had succeeded and dumped him in a pile of refuge outside, refuse outside the city gates. And he says, when I think on all of the things that have been done to me, they're light. Not light as in we turn the light on, but they're not heavy. They don't weigh me down. Why? Because the ultimate betrayal was the means of his salvation. Jesus suffered horribly at the hands of other people because of their sins against him. And yet Paul reminds us that it is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that is the foundation of our salvation and the foundation of our hope. 
Paul reminds the Corinthians and us as well that he brought the gospel because he trusted God's sovereignty in the midst of the evil committed against him. And he said he could survive the evil committed against him because of the, the promises that came through his salvation and through the evil committed against Jesus Christ. Our temptation when believing in the sovereignty of God over sinful actions is automatically to jump to the why. Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to go through this? Instead of jumping to the one whose suffering purchased our salvation. Our other temptation is to jump immediately to what is God trying to teach you in this? We never ask that about ourselves, but when we try to come alongside somebody else and help them through a tough situation, a, a horrible betrayal or oppression at the hands of a friend, we always say, God's trying to teach you something. Just wait for Him to show you. But what we should learn from God's sovereignty is that while that is true, the important thing is we can find rest in God. God's control over everything in our life is oftentimes difficult to understand because we don't see it. But it should be comforting. Nothing that happens to you, nothing that happens to me happens outside of God's control. Brothers and sisters, it hurts sometimes. Sometimes it's joyous. But today we're talking about the hurtful times, the painful times. But God uses that hurt to bring glory. God uses that hurt sometimes to bring healing in relationships. God uses that hurt sometimes to bring healing to our hearts. God uses that hurt sometimes to make us trust and rest in Him more. But God always uses that hurt to glorify Himself. And when we understand that, we understand what Jesus says. Come to Me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and My burden is light. We may not see God's hand in our struggle, or God's hand in our struggles right away, or really even in this lifetime. But we can rest in the one that made heaven and earth holds us tight. We can find peace in the turmoil of other sinful actions against us because we know that God is bigger than our sin. And if God could lead Joseph to find rest in the midst of all that he went through, well, he can do it for you and me as well. Let us pray. Our God and Father, it's bad enough that sometimes we have to live with the shame of our own sin. There are times in our lives when other people try to heap shame upon us by sinning against us. And Lord, it hurts. But we believe in you. And therefore, we cry out. Therefore, we come to you knowing that you meet us in that and knowing that you're working your glory. Help us not to judge those that sin against us. Help us to pray for them. Help us to forgive them. Help us to hand them over to you for you to deal with them in your way. And Lord, occasionally in the midst of those difficult situations and those betrayals and those sins against us, let us get a glimpse of the goodness and glory that you're working.
Show us where you are changing us. Show us where you are growing us. Show us where sometimes you are ripping off the old man so that we might put on the new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.